TED Talks are recorded live at the TED Conference and produced with WNYC New York Public Radio. This episode features illustrator Myra Coleman. TED Talks are made possible through the support of BMW. Here's Myra Coleman. I'm trying to figure out two very simple things. How to live and how to die, period. That's all I'm trying to do all day long. And, uh, and I'm also trying to have some meals and have some snacks and, you know, and, and, and yell, at, yell at my children and do all the normal things that keep you grounded. Um, so I... I was um, fortunate enough to be born uh, a, a very dreamy child. My, sis- my older sister was busy torturing my parents, and they were busy torturing her. And uh, I was lucky enough to be completely ignored, which is a fabulous thing, actually, I want to tell you. So I was able to completely d- daydream my way through my life. And I finally dr- daydreamed my way into NYU uh, at a very good time in 1967, where um, I met a man who was trying to blow up the math building of uh, NYU. (laughs) And I was writing terrible poetry and uh, knitting sweaters for him. And um, (laughs) feminists hated us, and the whole thing was wretched from beginning to end. But um, I I kept writing bad poetry, and he, he didn't blow up the math building, but he went to Cuba, but I gave him the money because I was from Riverdale, so I had more money than he did. But, uh, and that was a good thing to help the, you know, the cause. Um, but uh, then he came back, and um, things happened, and I decided I really hated my writing, that it was awful, awful purple prose. And I decided that I wanted to tell, but I still wanted to tell a narrative story, and I still wanted to tell my story, so I decided that I would start to draw. How hard could that be? And so... Um, and so what happened was that I started just becoming an editorial illustrator through, you know, sheer, you know, whatever, sheer ignorance. And we started a, um, a studio, well, Tibor really started the studio called Emin Company. And the premise of Emin Company was, we don't know anything, but that's all right. We're going to do it anyway. And as a matter of fact, it's better not to know anything because if you know too much, you're stymied. So the premise in the studio was, there are no boundaries, there is no fear, um, and I, and my full-time job, I landed the best job on earth, was to daydream and to actually come up with absurd ideas that, fortunately, there were enough people there. And it was a team, it was, it was a collective, it was not just me coming up with crazy ideas. But the point was that I was there as, as myself, as a dreamer. And so some of the things, I mean, I, it was a long history of M & Company, and um, clearly we also needed to make some money, so we decided we would create a series of products. And, um, and some of the watches there, attempting to be beautiful and humorous, maybe not attempting, hopefully succeeding, that to be able to talk about content, to break apart what you normally expect, to use humor and surprise, elegance and, and humanity in your work was really important to us. It was a, a very high, it was a very uh, impersonal in, in time and design. And we wanted to say... The content is what's important, not the package, not the wrapping. You really have to be journalists. You have to be inventors. You have to you have to use your imagination more importantly than anything. So, um, the good news is, you know, the good news is that I have a dog, and the dog. And I, though I don't know if I believe in luck, I don't know what I believe in. It's a very complicated question, but I do know that before I go away, I crank his tail seven times. So whenever he sees a suitcase in the house. 
because any, everybody's always you know, leaving. They're always cranking this wonderful dog's tail, and he runs to uh, the other room. But um, I, I'm able to make the transition from working for children and from working for adults to children and back and forth because you know, I can say that I'm in, immature, and in a way, that's true. So in writing for children, it seems simple, it is. You have to condense a story into 32 pages, usually. And what you have to do is you really have to edit down to what you want to say. And hopefully, you're not talking down to kids. And you're not talking in such a way that you, you know, couldn't stand reading it after one time. So I hopefully am writing uh, you know, books that are good for children and for adults. That the painting reflects... I don't think differently for children than I do for adults. I try to use the same kind of imagination, the same kind of whimsy, the same kind of love of language. So... Hopefully a dialogue between adults and children will happen on many different levels and hopefully different, different kinds of humor will evolve. And the books are really journals of my life. I never... I don't like plots. I don't know what a plot means. I can't stand the idea of anything that starts in the, be- you know, the beginning, middle, and end. It really scares me because my life is too random and too, and too confused and I enjoy it that way. In the course of my life, I never know what's going to happen and that's kind of the, the beauty part. And we were on Cape Cod, a place obviously of great inspiration, and I picked up this book, um, The Elements of Style, at a, at a yard sale. And I didn't, and I'd never used it in school because I was too busy writing poems and flunking out and I don't know what, sitting in cafes. But I picked it up and I started reading and I thought, this book is amazing. I said, people should know about this book. So, um, <laughs> I, <laughs> so I decided it needed a, few, it needed a lift, it needed a few illustrations. And uh, basically I called the, you know, I, I convinced the white estate. And it, what an intersection of like, you know, Polish Jew, you know, Maine wasp family. Here I am saying, I'd like to do something to this book. And they said yes, and they left me completely alone, which was a gorgeous, wonderful thing. And um, I took the examples that they gave and just did 56 paintings, basically. So this is, I don't know if you can read this. Well, Susan, this is a fine mess you are in. And when, you, when, you're, when you're dealing with grammar, which is, you know, incredibly dry, uh, E.B. White wrote such wonderful, whimsical, and actually strunk. And then you come to the rules and you can say, you know, well, anyway, there are, there are lots of grammar things. Do you mind me asking a question? Do you mind my asking a question? E.B. White wrote a, a number of rules which can either paralyze you and make you loathe him for the rest of time, or you can ignore them, which I do, or you can, I don't know what, you know, eat a sandwich. So um, what I did when I was painting was I started singing because I really adore singing, and I think that music is the highest form of all art. So I commissioned a wonderful composer, Nico Muley, who wrote nine songs using the text, and we performed this fantastic evening. Of He, he, he wrote music for both uh, amateurs and professionals. I played the clattering teacup and the slinky in the main reading room of the New York Public Library, and where you're supposed to be very, very quiet, and it was a phenomenally wonderful event, which we hopefully will do some more. Um, who knows? Well, I could end with that, but... Um, the, um, the New York Times Select, the uh, op-ed page, asked me to do a column, and, I, and they said, you can do whatever you want. So once a month, for the last year, I've been doing a column called The Principles of Uncertainty, which, um, you know, I don't know who Heisenberg is, but I know I can throw that around now. So, you know, it's The Principles of Uncertainty. So, um, <laughs> you know. So I'm going to read quickly, and, I, and probably I'm going to edit some because I don't have that much time left. So the first one, I was very timid, timid and... Um, 
I begin, how can I tell you everything that is in my heart, impossible to begin enough, no begin with the hapless dodo. And I talk about the dodo, and then I talk about Spinoza, and how the dodo became extinct, and then I talk about how Spinoza also was searching for a rational explanation, as the last dodo was dying, Spinoza was looking for a rational explanation for everything called eudaimonia. And then he breathed his last with loved ones around him, and I know that he had chicken soup also as his last meal. I happen to know that for a fact. And then he died, and there was no more Spinoza. Extinct. And then we do have a stuffed... We don't have a stuffed Spinoza, but we do have a stuffed Pavlov's dog. And I visited him in the Museum of Hygiene in St. Petersburg in Russia, and there he is with this horrible electrical box on his rump in this fantastic, decrepit palace. And then I think it must have been a very, very dark day when the Bolsheviks arrived. Maybe amongst themselves they had a few good laughs, but Stalin was a paranoid man even more than my father. <laughs> you don't even know. And, um, and decided his top people had to be extinctified, which I think I made up, which is a good thing. Nabokov's family fled Russia. How could the young Nabokov, sitting innocently and elegantly in a red chair, leafing through a book and butterflies, imagine such displacement, such loss? So my beautiful mother's family fled Russia as well. Too many pogroms, leaving the shack, the wild blueberry woods, the geese, the river sluch, they went to Palestine and then America. And my mother drew this map for me of the United States of America. And that is my DNA over here because that, uh, that uh, person who I grew up with had no use for facts whatsoever. Facts were actually banished from our home. And so if you see that Tex you know, Texas and California are under Canada and the South Carolina is on top of North Carolina, this is the home that I grew up in, okay? So it's a miracle that I'm here today. But, but actually it's not. It's actually a wonderful thing. But then she says, and then she has Tel Aviv and Lenin, which is the town they came from, and sorry, the rest unknown, thank you. But in her lexicon, it means sorry, the rest unknown, thank you, sorry, the rest unknown, go to hell, because she couldn't care less. <laughs> and I really spend a lot of time wondering, how much truth do we tell? What is it that we're actually, what story are we actually telling? How do we know when we're ourselves? How do we actually know that the sentences coming out of our mouths are real story, you know, are real sentences or they're fake sentences that we think we ought to be saying. Um, I'm going to quickly go through this. Uh, a quote by Bertrand Russell, all the labor of all the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction. So now, my friends, if that is true, and it is true, what is the point? A complicated question. And so I, I, you know, I talk to my friends and I go to plays where they're singing Russian songs. I tape my aunt, I tape my aunt singing a song in Russian from the... You know, can we have it for a second? Okay. I tape my, my aunt used to swim in the ocean every day um, of the year until she was about 85. Um, so, and that's a song about how everybody's miserable because, you know, we're from Russia. But I went to visit Kitty Carlisle Hart, and she is 96. And when I brought her a copy of The Elements of Style, uh, she said she would treasure it. And then I said, oh, and she was talking about Moss Hart. And I said, oh, you really, you know, you knew, he, you know, when you met him, you knew it was him. And she said, I knew it was he. So she was... <laughs> I, I was the one who should have kept the book, but it was a really wonderful moment. 
uh, Gershwin died at the and she dated George Gershwin, so you know, get out. Uh, Gershwin died at the age of 38. He's buried in the same cemetery as my husband. And I don't want to talk about that now. I do want to talk that the absolute icing on the cemetery cake is the Barasini family mausoleum nearby. I think the Barasini family should open a store there and sell chocolate. <laughs> and I would like to run it for them. And I went to visit Louise Bourgeois, who's also still working, and I looked at her sink, which is really amazing, and left. And then I photograph and do a painting of a sofa on the street and a woman who lives on our street, Lolita. And then I go and have some tea. And then my Aunt Frances dies, and she tries to pay... And before she died, she tried to pay with sweet and low packets for her bagel. <laughs> and I wonder what the point is, and then I know... And I see that High Meyerowitz, Rick Meyerowitz's father, a dry-cleaning supply salesman from the Bronx, won the Charlie Chaplin Lookalike Contest in 1931. That's actually High. And I look at a beautiful bowl of fruit, and I look at a dress that I sewed for friends of mine... And it says, Ich habe genug, which is a Bach cantata, which I once thought meant I've had it, I can't take it anymore, give me a break, but I was wrong. It means I have enough, and that is utterly true. I happen to be alive. End of discussion. Thank you. That was Myra Coleman, recorded at the TED Conference in Monterey, California, March 2007. TED Talks are produced by WNYC New York Public Radio for TED and made possible in part through the support of BMW. For more information on TED, visit TED.com.